It might seem out of place in some way, I guess, that we would continue with a message out of Jonah. I hope it's not out of place for you. I hope you realize that the whole testament of the Lord, we divide it Old and New Testament. But truly, the testament of God is from Genesis to Revelation the same. And that is that He is the sovereign God of heaven and earth. Man has offended His holiness with sin. And there is a need for salvation. That need can only be met by Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's progressively revealed to us as we move through the Testaments. All of the Testaments. All 66 of them. From Genesis to Revelation, God's message is the same. And He repeats Himself so that we might never doubt that there's no way to Him except through His Son, Jesus Christ. So let's look in Jonah and let's look at Christ, the one that we've just spoken about through song and through dedication of a child and then through the elements of communion. God makes His presence known. Yahweh, the text says, makes His presence known. Jonah chapter 1, verses 7 through 16. I guess there's, there are many ways that we could preach this text, and you know that often is my deliberate style to expose all of those ways to you. But we're taking a little bit of a, a, a telescopic look at the book of Jonah. We've backed up from the minute and we're looking at the big theme, which I said from the beginning, and I believe it more as I study more. The big theme is not about a big fish, nor is it about a little prophet. It's about one gigantic, enormous, unapproachable, sovereign God. And what He will do, or maybe better term, what He, what he won't stop to do in bringing His children back to Him. And He did it uh, from the very beginning of this book, and we'll see it all the way through, this theme that continues to run through the book. And we're now in the store, point of the story where we've hit uh, the point of no return. Fear has entered the heart. And now it's come out in the actions of throwing all the stuff off the ship that could be spared. They've thrown off excess tackle. They've thrown off their cargo, which is their livelihood. We talked about that last night. They're ready to do whatever it takes to survive because they believe they're drowning. They believe the ship will sink and they will drown. And so they're crying out to their God. We talked about the religious response first last week. Remember that... (laughs) That it's almost instinctive when tragedy hits that people cry out in religious thoughts. Oh God, if you will save me from this, and you fill in the blank. Isn't that what we do? We find ourselves in a crack. We find ourselves in a moment of desperation. We often cry out. Even the most ranked pagan among us are the, the most, uh, the most uh, deeply offensive among us would cry out and say, in that moment of need, God... If you'll do this, I'll do this. That, that, that's common. That response is common. And we also said the response of works for salvation is common, isn't it? God, because usually what we say is, God, if you'll get me out of this, I'll do these things. What are these things? I'll pray more. I'll go to church more. 
I'll talk to my kids about you, Lord. I'll do, I'll take them to vacation Bible school. I'll be nice at work. I'll work longer and harder. I'll do more. Just don't kill me. There's this great fear. And to, to suffice that fear, to come against it, our hearts naturally rise up in either religious affection or work. And both are present here. They're crying out to their gods, save us. If we've offended you, show us. We want to make things right with you, God. And then they're also running and scurrying, throwing things overboard. You know, they're doing the best they can do. And they find this sleeping man at the bottom of the ship. The captain finds him and he he makes this proclamation to him. Arise, call out to your God. Now that's a very similar, we said, response to what he heard from God himself in in Jonah chapter 1 verse 2, isn't it? Look at the text. Verse 2 says... God speaking, arise and go to that great city, Nineveh. Right? Now what does the captain say? Arise and call out to your God. And so we have this mirroring of God's call and this captain's call. We're going to see that throughout the text, throughout the first chapter. The whole, you might say the whole crux of the message is summed up. When Jonah says in verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. That's really the crux of the whole first chapter. That's what the writer wants us to know. God is at work, and Jonah finally, begrudgingly, in some ways, submits. It's my fault, and I deserve to die. God makes Himself known. He makes His presence known. Three things I want to say here real quick in in all these verses. I want to pull out three main points for you. Yahweh, we're going to call Him by His proper name, Yahweh is sovereign over heaven, and He is the creator of the dry land and the sea. That, that, that is given to us uh, by, day, uh, by Jonah himself. That's the way Jonah introduces himself in verse 9. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made sea and dry land. So Yahweh is sovereign over heaven, the dry land, and the sea. I want to ask you a question here. And I want you to answer in your heart. Or out loud, I don't, it doesn't matter to me. Because I really don't think you can get this question wrong. How can anybody, looking at the universe around us, not believe in a sovereign God? How can anybody not believe in that? These pagans believe in a sovereign. They don't know Him by His name. They aren't worshiping Him correctly, but they understand there's something bigger than us Bigger than this earth, bigger than this universe, and he's after us for some unknown reason. I mean, I, I would venture to say every living human, honest in his heart, would say there's something bigger than me out there. And there's something bigger than this universe. They might not know who he is, but they know he is. You know, that's God's favorite designation for himself I is. I is. What I is. 
Now, we clean that up in English and say, I am what I am. But he's saying, I is. That's who I am. And he, he said, I've written this in every person's heart. That they know that there's one larger than them, greater than them. There is an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-sovereign being. And we're going to see later in the sermon how we've worked and all mankind has worked from beginning to end to deny that, though we know it's true. And the fact that we work so hard to deny it is proof positive that it is true. Because if it weren't true and if it weren't so obvious, people wouldn't have to work so hard to disprove it. They'd leave our God alone like they do all the other gods of the world. I know that uh, there are very many in church today who would like to debate, not just this church, but all over, that would like to debate this issue of God's sovereignty. But I believe, according to the Word of God, that it is really beyond debate. There's nothing to really talk about because it's obvious by looking at simple texts that that's who God is. The God of the Word that is revealed to us is sovereign. Look in just Jonah. We're just going to take a look at Jonah. Some instances where this is true. Look at verse 2. He says to this man, which by the way, many in the church at large would like to hold up as a sovereign, mankind, right? Because in their estimation, creation is about man. Creation is about man deciding to love God. That's really where it comes down. When they deny the sovereignty of God, their first approach is to say, well, yeah, He created us, but now we're free to do what we choose, to follow if we desire. Now, I want you to look at this command of Jonah, to Jonah here. Now, I want to show you a command of Christ that I hope you'll take seriously. Jonah, the son of Amittai, the Lord saying, Arise and go to Nineveh. That sounds like a question to me, doesn't it to you? Jonah, if you want to go to Nineveh, go to Nineveh. Is that what the text says? No. Well, you mean God violates him? God violates his decision-making ability? Doesn't God trust mankind that mankind will do what is right in his own eyes? Yes. He trusts God. God trusts that man will do what's right in his own eyes, which would mean Jonah would never go to Nineveh. (laughs) It would mean that we would never share the gospel. It would mean that we'd never call on him for salvation. If he left it purely to us, we'd all die and go to hell. I thank the Lord of heaven that he doesn't just leave it to me. I thank the Lord of heaven that he reaches out in pursuit of me And calls me. And that's what he does to Jonah. He called him. It wasn't a debatable fact for God. He just says, arise and go. Now that may sound like, well, you can excuse that. You could say, Jonah's a son of God. He's already a believer. And so God has that right now. Because Jonah's entrusted him with that right. That would be good for these promises and these commands. Except that Jesus says in Matthew 4, 17. Just jot that down and look it up and read it there. This beginning of his, right after his baptism, beginning of his public ministry, this is what Jesus says to the whole crowd gathered, not to one person, to everybody. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. 
Sound like a question to you? For years, I read it that way. I did. See, I'm not just talking about others in the church. It was me. For years, that's the way I read it. Carlton, if you want to repent, repent. And if not, then you'll have to you'll go your own way. But when you study this passage, letting it speak for itself, that's not an option. The Lord looked at a crowd like this and said to everyone, without discretion, repent, command, do it, because the kingdom of God's at hand. I'm telling you, we're dealing with a sovereign, a king, who's not the king of a nation, not the king of a kingdom, but the king of a universe, a heaven, and eternity. And his command on your life is, repent, because my kingdom is here. Now, do it. There's urgency in his voice. And he's speaking to you. He spoke to me. And I'm sure that he's speaking to some in this congregation now. Let's move forward. Later in that same chapter, he says to his disciples, before their disciples, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Does that sound like a question? If you want to, come along. No. He looked at some men, men in their nets sitting by the seashore and said, forsake your whole family, your whole livelihood, your whole way of living, and follow me. And I'll make you a new kind of fisherman. You won't fish for these fish anymore. You'll fish for men. That is a radical command from a radical sovereign who doesn't ask questions but makes demands. And he's made that demand on all of us. If you're here today and you're lost, he's saying still, repent. Repent. And if you're here and you're in the family of God, he's saying to you, follow me. Follow me and I'll make you fisher of men. And so we have a sovereign who is making commands and demands on us. In verse 4 of Jonah, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. In this verse, we come face to face with the fact that God, Yahweh, is providentially in control of all natural occurrences. Yes, it is one localized instance here, but we see it throughout Scripture from beginning to end that God commands the universe. He moves it as He wills. And He ceases storms and starts storms in life. This is no small theme in the Bible. It goes throughout. He commands rain not to fall. He commands rain to fall. He commands that the world be flooded and that all of its inhabitants be destroyed except for one man's family and some select animals. He confuses languages. He brings to power a Pharaoh in Egypt so that he can destroy him and show his sovereign power. That's Pharaoh's sole reason for existence, Exodus chapter 3 tells us. It's so that I might display my power in him. I've raised him up so I might destroy him. This was my desire. What a great God we serve. Verse 7, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. We see in verse 7, these are pagan, lost men saying, let's cast some lots. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, I've heard that stretched and used for gambling. When I go to Vegas, I cast my lots at the table. 
If I win, it's all because of God. Well, I wouldn't deny that. But that's not what Proverbs 16.33 really is all about. Before the Holy Spirit dwelt in the heart of those who believed, they had a question often arise when there was a decision to make. And that was, what does God want us to do? We're directed by the Holy Spirit who lives in us. They didn't have such a convenience. And so after looking through the law of God and not finding a direct application, they would often do what people in their day did throughout the Middle East, and that is they would cast lots. These lots were not seven die. They were not, you know, one through seven, uh, like you would find in in any gambling uh, establishment. They were dark and light colored on each alternate face. And they would cast the lot, and if the lot fell on double dark, that meant evil was at hand. And whoever the lot fell on was to tell them what evil was happening and from God. And then if the light face was up, that meant good was at hand, and that person was supposed to tell them what good was occurring. If it fell dark and light, there was no answer from the gods, or in the Hebrew situation, God, so they were to just be patient and wait. Cast lots again at another time and see if he answers this time. Okay? So they're on this ship, raging as it was, and the die was cast, and God tilted the ship so that dark faces landed on Jonah. Now, it didn't say he tilted the ship for that, but, you know, just bear with me here. I mean, the ship's rocking and raging, and God angled that ship in such a way in that moment that the lot would fall directly on Jonah. We know that he did that out of his own sovereignty. So this is another example that something as small as a lot cast is in the hand of God. Verse 9 tells us he is sovereign. I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This is a common way of the Israelites to describe Yahweh to the Gentiles. They would first distinguish themselves from everyone else by saying I am a Hebrew. Now that's the same thing Paul does in Philippians, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That was common for them to do that. It was also common for them to say the God of heaven. That proclamation comes as early as Genesis 24 verses 3 and 7. That he is the God of heaven. Which in, interpreted means the God of all gods. You Mesopotamians worship the God of the sun, the God of the moon, the God of the river, the God of the dry land, the God of the sea, the God of fire, the God of wind. You worship all these gods and we worship Yahweh, God of gods. Trump, ace, he is God and there is none like him. That was the way that Jonah is describing him in verse 9. Verse 15. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Verse 15 tells us God not only hurled the storm on the sea, but when they hurled Jonah into the sea, he stopped the storm immediately. Now we're led to believe that this thing's like a hurricane raging, and yet when a man's body touches the water, God stops it immediately. Cease and desist. My will is done. No need for your, your storm any longer. So we see this sovereign God. He is the God of heaven and the creator of dry land and the sea. And wouldn't you expect Him to be sovereign in this earth and in this, uh, in this whole universe? He created it, Genesis tells us. When you create something, you have rights over it. We even do this with our children, right? And why do you have the authority to discipline your child like no one else does? 
Because as my daddy used to say, I brought you in the world, I could take you out. God has such say over us and over all things. I brought you into existence, and David tells us he's written down the day he will bring us out. And so we have this picture replete in Scripture. Now, that would be a frightening picture, and indeed it is, if the verses stop there. But that's not all they say. The right response to this sovereign, the response you should leave with today is worship. It's worship. The word rendered fear in verse 9 says it is the word for worship. We should rightly fear God. In awe of Him, we should worship Him. It's, it strikes fear in me often of my flippancy towards worship. I treat it kind of like everything else. You go to work. You, you get up in the morning. You put on your clothes. You take a shower. You brush your teeth. You might get you something to eat. You sit down, read the Bible, and you just worship a little and go on about your business. That's so flippant. And yet the Hebrews would never have treated worship this way. They had a right fear of God in their heart. They saw all of life as worship and as an act of worship. And so we should fear Him rightly, which means we should worship Him and surrender to Him. These pagan sailors in verse 10 are found to be actually the hand of God on, on Jonah's life. Look at this barrage of questions they ask. Doesn't this sound like panic-stricken people? What is this that you've done for, for, to us? What have you done? For the men knew He was from the Lord running from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now, when Jonah identifies himself after the lots cast, they bombard him with a bunch of questions. Tell us on what account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What, what people are you from? Now, these aren't immigration questions. These are questions about who's the God of your land. We need to know quick. We're about to drown. So Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew. He distinguishes himself from all the nations of the world as the one true nation of God worshiping him. And then he says, I worship the God of heaven who made the dry land and the sea. And so he feared God in verse 10. There was a fear of God that was exceeding. So our right response is worship. Jonah surrendered to the fact that he deserved death because of his rebellion. And we find that in verse 12. Pick me up. Hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. It's my fault this tempest has arisen against you. He surrendered to Yahweh's sovereignty. Jonah has resigned himself to die. I said that last week. I know you had some questions about whether he was really surrendering. I think he's surrendered at this point. But again, he wants it his way. <laughs> surrender to death, not surrender to Nineveh. Still don't want to preach. He'd rather die than preach the gospel to Nineveh. But Yahweh, last point, Yahweh has had a plan and always will have a plan to save his people. See, Jonah was in full expectation that he would die when he was thrown in the ocean. God never intended such.
Because the verse 17 says, The Lord had prepared a fish to swallow Jonah. He didn't go to plan B when Jonah ran at Joppa. He had already prepared the fish. The fish was full grown, by the way. Had to be if it was going to swallow a man. It couldn't be a minna. So I'm led to believe that he'd been preparing this fish for some years before he ever went to Jonah in verse 2 and said, Arise, go to Nineveh. Before Jonah ever ran to Joppa and got on a boat with the Phoenicians. And before a storm ever came up, God had already prepared and planned for salvation. Sound familiar? When Adam sinned in the garden, God didn't scurry around to find a solution. God had a solution. And he symbolized that solution by the shedding of blood and clothing them in the skin of that animal. He already had a solution for sin. Man is not sovereign. God is sovereign. And he has a plan and he's working that plan to perfection. And when you called on him for salvation, it was not by mere chance nor by mere wisdom that comes from nature. It was because God implanted His Holy Spirit inside of you and sprung you to life so that you might gasp for air spiritually. And what was your gasp? Repentance. Oh God, I'm a sinner. Save me. And what was His reply? If you come to me, I will not cast you out. Everyone who comes to me will be saved, Jesus says. We serve a God who has a plan, who prepares for us our salvation long before we know we need it or come in need of it. You know, this plan of salvation might seem encrypted in the book of Jonah because he's talking about a fish and this physical salvation is there. But you know, really, this plan for salvation is obviously more than just a fish. And more than just one man. Even in the book of Jonah. Because verse 16 says, Then the sailors feared, worshipped the Lord, made sacrifice and took vows to Him. God saved the Jew. And on that day He saved some Phoenician sailors, I believe, who had never heard the gospel in their life. Until that day. And seeing the mighty hand of God they believed. They had for all of their lives. For all I know. Rebelled against God. Because that's the way of mankind. In verse 13. We're ending here. Bringing this plane to a landing. What I want you to take away. God is sovereign. God is to be feared rightly through worship. And God has a plan for salvation. And He has that plan whether we realize it or not. He's had it always. You know, this week I read verse 13 where it says, The sailors, after hearing Jonah say, Cast me into the sea. And this storm will cease in verse 12. Verse 13, what's their response? They dug in and rowed all the harder. 
to take him back to the land. They turn, the, the, the ship now is facing Joppa and they want to go back and put him back on dry land because they're afraid if they kill him, he's innocent and they'll suffer. And they want to save themselves from this storm. And it says when they turned and started to row back, God raised the storm even higher so that they could not go. And they were forced to take God's plan, throw him into the ocean. Now, why do I make a big point about that? Because Romans chapter 1 says that God wrote on the heart of men that he was God, the creator of the universe. And he displayed it through his handiwork, the creation. And ever since, man has denied him. Rowing harder and harder to get back to sea, to the shore where they came from. We want salvation our way. And thank God in His mercy, He lifts the storm higher. When we try to escape Him, He lifts the storm higher. When we run back and try to be good and work harder and be acceptable, He makes us more despicable to ourselves, more loathsome of our sin until we finally in mercy cry out, save me. That's what he did for these sailors. And that's what if you are saved, he did for you. Because Romans 1 says, the path of unrighteousness is to deny God in your heart, build an idol, and begin to commit all type of sin. Sexual mainly, but sin. Romans 2 is for the rest of us. Maybe you didn't come from a pagan home, you came from a moral home. Keep the code and you'll be saved. And he says, it's useless. No one's ever kept it. Romans 3 is for any of our Jewish brethren who were born in the covenant. He said in the beginning, you have no reason to boast. You failed the covenant. The covenant keeper has never failed, but you failed. And then he says in summation, everybody has failed. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3. Every person in this room has failed him, sinned, and deserves the death that Jonah thought he faced. We deserve to be swallowed up and forgotten. That's what we deserve. We often quit reading in Romans 3.23, don't we? Big mistake. Right after that, God says that outside the law, God prepared a way. And what was that way? The law keeper, Jesus Christ. You couldn't do it and he did it. It was required that you be perfect and sinless and he was perfect and sinless on your behalf. And he died so that God might be the just and the justifier of all those who believe in Jesus Christ. And so I stand here today as those sailors stood on the deck around a bunch of people that might be in Jonah's situation. And my answer to you is the answer of Jonah. Surrender. Cast yourself into what you can't see. Into a future you can't promise yourself and say, God, you'll have to save me. I can't be good enough for you to accept me. You'll have to save me. Cast yourself at his mercy. And the God of all mercy and grace will be faithful to save you. Why? Because he's prepared much greater than a fish for you.
He's preparing his son. Believe in him. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ. And throw yourself at the mighty feet of God. And be saved. Let's pray. Father. We come to a book like Jonah often looking for fairy tale stories, coloring book sections, and we think of nothing but a fish and a prophet and a big storm. You are the hero, God, of all your stories. Jonah's not the hero, the fish is not the hero, the storm is not the hero, the Phoenicians are not the hero. The boat they traveled on was not the hero. You, God, are the hero of this story because you planned for the salvation of a one man and many through him. And you've done the same thing through Abraham. You prepared the salvation of one man, Abram, so that he might be a blessing to all men. Oh, God, be merciful to those who are lost here today. Help them see that we have a sovereign God who requires us to fear and worship Him and we can't do it without your assistance. And so let them throw themselves on you and say, I deserve nothing but death, but oh God, please in your mercy save me. And God, I know if they cry out in that way, you will save them immediately without delay and you will bring them into your family. God, please help us to lift our eyes to the heavens from whence our salvation comes. Help us to plant our feet on the rock that you have laid, that has been rejected by all others, but yet it now is the chief cornerstone. And we are being built on it, Jesus Christ our Lord. Help us to lift our eyes from the mire and the sin that surrounds us to see our transcendent one who loves us and send His own Son to die in our place for His own glory. Let us glorify You, Lord, for all of these things and everything else that is in our life. May we glorify and cry out to You, even if it requires my death.